You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight, as we are going through the topic, the church and the LGBTQ plus community, I want to make sure everybody here knows that if you are hoping for a session that is going to bash people who live and act and think differently than you, you've came to the wrong church. Um, If you are hoping for some type of just let me just scream at people who think and live differently than you, you're going to be very, very disappointed. I also want to let you know this, that if you have come to heckle someone uh, tonight uh, or some kind of beliefs that you have differently, you're not going to have a problem with me. You're going to have a problem with the person whose letter I'm reading, and that's God. I'm not going to come up with my thoughts or my opinions on this matter tonight, but I'm going to come to God's word. I'll say this, I do not believe that there is going to be more of a critical issue in our society as it means to follow Christ in this culture in the next 10 years other than this issue right here. What do we do in a culture that is radically changing with what the values that many of you in this room would aspire to say that you have and the culture sees as antiquated, archaic, and so far beyond where we need to be? And so tonight, um, I want to let you know that as I'm sharing this, I'm aware of there easily can be somebody in this room that's going to disagree with me. Uh, We're going to make this available online for people to listen to, and I guarantee there will be some people who will disagree with me on that. And as Christians, we have to find the right balance of how do we know what God's Word says and yet not be jerks about it. And that is the hope tonight that as we do this. I also know this, that for some of you tonight, the issue lies in the cultural wars that are going on, and if you can make the right call and how you understand, but for many of you in this room, if we're honest, it's a lot more personal. It's not a cultural issue out there, it's a person in your life that you're concerned about. It's a child, it's a sibling, it's a parent. It's a friend, neighbor, coworker whom you love deeply and yet you believe very different things and you feel like if I really push this agenda, right, I'm going to lose this person. But if I don't speak the truth, what's going to happen? And that's kind of the dilemma that we're in tonight. But I do believe that God can grant us grace through this as we go forward. Uh, in, our, in your opening comments there on your handout, it says that as our society continually explores and emphasizes sexual variations, the church must consider staying faithful to God's word while remaining loving to all people. I want you to make sure you hear that's where my heart is tonight. We're going to start from, okay? And I want you to go a couple things there. As our society continually explores, have you seen in your lifetime where this thing has gotten even further than you ever thought possible? Okay? I have as well. Uh, I I don't know the youngest in this room. I don't know the oldest in this room. But as 41, I will say this. In my lifetime, this has changed. I know it's always been there. I I know that the the variations of what we would consider as biblically normative has has changed. But this is the thing. Even within the last five years, the discussion and the pushback has hit a speed and a velocity and a force like I've never seen in my lifetime. When I was growing up, we knew that it was there. We knew that it was sin. We knew that people were doing it. Now it is being forced in our faces. You cannot even watch a television thing without a commercial coming on. You cannot trust any show for your child to watch anymore. With all these different things, and also at the very youngest of ages, children are having to ask to explore questions of which I don't even think I was considering at their age. And so with this, there's this exploration, but also, once again, this emphasize aspect where there's more than ever, not just we know that it's there, but you've got to get on this cultural agenda or else you're going to be thrown off. And and so this push is happening, and we have to determine how to stay faithful to what? God's word while remaining loving to all people. Let me just go ahead and tell you this. Doing one or the other is easy. It is very easy to stay faithful to what biblical commands say. You know what God's word says, and you can believe it, and you can preach it on a street corner if you need to. That's simple. It's also very simple to love people just no matter what you believe or how you live and just accept everyone. The tension comes when you're trying to do both of those things. That's why tonight as we're going to look and walk through this, we're going to see many people 
who can be faithful to God's word, or many people who are loving all people, but to do both is very difficult. As representatives of Jesus, we must display grace and what? Grace and truth to our closest relationships and the culture at large. What I'm after here tonight is that the grace of Jesus would be seen through our lives, but also the truth of God's word, that we'd be unashamed to stand upon it, realizing this, that in our closest relationships, I know that in my life and in your life, there are people that are very near and dear to us that think and live and believe and act differently than we do. And what are we going to do? Closest relationships and the culture at large. Now let's do this really quick, just to kind of uh, make sure that we're all at least on the same page uh, with, with the definitions of, of some of the things that we're going to go through. I also will say this, probably should have said this as a precursor to what I was going to say tonight, um, but as we share this, there's no room here tonight to joke about any of these things. Someone who believes and acts differently than you, this is not a humorous thing. This is not a, oh, I can't believe people could do this. If you don't feel that way, I know that in church it's always like this, that the only sins that typically we laugh at or we get disgusted with are ones we've never struggled with. But there are people that are sincerely, I believe, since as early as they can remember, this has been a leaning in their life, and they're trying to figure out, what does that mean? Did God make me this way? Am I supposed to go on this path? How are you supposed to do that? So for definitions, uh, the... It used to, the LGBTQ plus community, we're going to go walk through some of these things, uh, and some of this I know will be real easy, you know this, but just to make sure we're on the same page, because some people go, I don't know what all those letters mean. L is for lesbian, that would be a female homosexual. The uh, G would be gay, a male homosexual, but sometimes can refer to anyone uh, living a homosexual lifestyle. The B stands for bisexual, that means there's an attraction towards both genders, where there are more people in our society claiming today. The T stands for transgender, one who identifies with the gender opposite of what was assigned at birth. Okay, So once again, birth and anatomy says one thing, but now they are saying something different. And, and will use clothing or different um, just ways of presenting themselves to appear differently than what was assigned at birth. Uh, the Q stands for queer, and that's an umbrella term for what a lot of people consider gender minorities. And what that means is it's not the typical where everybody's at on these situations, right? This is, uh, it can be just a variation of. Um, I also want to, uh, right now, let me go back to this real quick. Um, sometimes now in culture, it used to be LGBT, now it's LGBTQ, then it was LGBTQ+. Now you're hearing a lot of LGBTQIA. Okay, if you haven't heard that, that's, a, that's the kind of the, the common one that we're using. Let me explain what the I stands for. That's something called intersex, which is someone whose body biologically shares both male and female characteristics. So there are sometimes a biological abnormality where someone will be sharing two different biological traits of, of both genders. And for a lot of people, they go, that's a, a, a major issue, and it is a serious issue. It is a medical reality. But we are talking about, some people say, 0.018% of the population. Now, I also say that to go, that stat, there's no way of knowing if that's true. There are so many people that have all kinds of things that they're never going to report or share with anybody and whatnot, but that, it's a very low number. Uh, the other, the I, is asexual. That is someone who has little to no sexual desire. Now, let me just stop for a second before we go to the plus. The IA that's been added on in the last year or so, particularly when people talk about the LGBTQIA movement, the I and the A have nothing to do with any type of sexual preference whatsoever. And yet the community has now brought these two groups of people to say, well, they're kind of a part of our tribe. And in reality, the I are people who are saying, it says nothing about their sexual desire, it just says something about sexual organs. And this community is saying, they're kind of with us too. And the I uh, group is not necessarily saying, you don't have to include us. We're not, we're not wanting to be a part of this, this group, but it's kind of assigned to it. And in the A, the asexual, um, that's what a lot of times in the Bible you would call someone who's celibate, right? They just desire not to marry. They desire not to have any sexual desire. There's a guy and a couple guys in the Bible that would be considered um, celibate. Uh, I would say uh, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, right? I do not think that Jesus or the Apostle Paul would say, I'm a part of this movement just because I never got married. But in those, the I and the A, they take people and say, we're going to put all of these folks in here. In most situations, though, the plus sign is what is probably the most alarming to many of you here because it is an ongoing list of whatever may be next, right? And I think that the group decided, understood that, that was going to be problematic, and that's why you don't see it as much. 
But the plus sign right now includes a growing list of designations, uh, transsexual, two-spirit, questioning, ally, pansexual, agender, genderqueer, bigender, gender variant, and pangender, just to name a few. But there are more and more and more as they go. And even within that, some of the definitions I give, certainly the community, community would say, I don't like that definition for such a thing. Now, I bring that out to say, whenever you have a plus sign to say that there's more coming, that really does make sense with what we've experienced in our culture over the last few years. It always seems like one more thing or a little bit more expressive or a little bit more dogmatic in what they feel. Now, tonight, what I want us to do, now that we got those definitions out, three main points. Number one, uh, the scriptures are clear on sin. Number two, the scriptures are clear on God's heart towards sinners. And number three, the scriptures are clear on, in our dilemma. Okay, and so let's walk through this together. Number one, the scriptures are clear on sin. Just in case and there's anybody here t tonight that goes, I don't know exactly what God's word says about this situation. Uh, I want to make sure that you do know what God's word says about the situation. Uh, when I serve as a religion faculty on a liberal university, uh, state school, I uh, would teach world religions. One day somebody came up to my church office and says, I'm not your student, uh, but I hear you're one of the religion professors here at the university. I said, I am. He goes, I would like to present to you a paper and you tell me what you think about it. I said, okay, sure, I'll, I'll read it. And I said, before I read it, can you tell me why you want me to read it? I'm not your professor. I'm not giving a grade. I just want to know what you think about it. I said, why? I don't know. I just want to know what you think about it. I said, what's it on? The, the, the paper was on why the Bible uh, uh, gives a position that homosexuality is acceptable. That was the, the paper that he was wanting to present to me. And I said, okay. I said, I'd, I'd love to read it. I appreciate you bringing it by. I said, uh, why don't you come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it. Um, in the uh, examples of what he gave in the paper, um, his biblical reasonings, and I know you're going to want to giggle at this, and I get it, but his biblical reasonings why homosexuality was okay was that Jesus' 12 disciples were only men, and so he typically liked to hang with guys instead of girls. Um, the second example was that David and Jonathan were such close friends that the Bible says that their relationship was closer than what David experienced with the love of a woman. And so he goes, that infers that David was homosexual with Jonathan. And um, I said, I, I don't think either of those cases speak to what you're trying to get at. I said, well, what about all the passages that do say that homosexuality is a sin? What do you do with those? And he got a little uncomfortable in the middle of that. And I, I finally said, let me just tell you something. Um, I said, um, if you are coming to me because you need a stamp of approval on what you believe or what you're doing, you're not going to find it here. To which he slams his, his fist down on my desk and I don't need your stamp of approval. And I said, yet you came to my office. I didn't come to yours. I said, why are you, why are you here right now? And he got so uncomfortable. He was, he was sweating so bad. He said, can I go outside and take a smoke? I said, sure, I, I can follow you. And we can talk out there if you'd rather do that. And he said, no, 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 just give me a few minutes. I'll come back in. And, and the next 30 minutes or so, I began to explain to him, if you want a stamp of approval on homosexual behavior, you will not find it in the Bible. You're going to have to say that you don't believe the Bible or you're going to take certain passages out. But you cannot go and say, the Bible says that this is acceptable. You, you can't go there. And so let me, as, as compassionately as you can, walk through the narrative of Scripture really quick to show you some of the highlights of where this is an issue. Before we do that, you need to know this. God stands in opposition to all sin, not just some sin. Before I go down a list of homosexual sin listing in the Scriptures, I would like to remind you, that if I came up with a list of heterosexual sins, I would have a much longer list. Because the scriptures are full of the danger and the despicable nature of heterosexual sinful conditions, of infidelity, adultery, and all types of horrible, lustful things. The Bible is clear on that. And I could do another course on that and explain to you why all of those things are sin. But tonight we are at a place where we have to at least wrestle with this issue. And I need you to know... God is not against the homosexual community. God is not against certain sins, and some are cute and okay. God is against sin, period. Any sin. Anything that's a variation of what God's standard says, he is against. And so we have to at least start from that. Now, why does this one feel different in our culture right now? Because if you go to the sin of other issues in our life, maybe greed, maybe sarcasm, maybe gluttony, maybe lustful thoughts, Maybe different types of sinful conditions. It's not such a radical form of a lifestyle change that feels like it has to be presented as a complete and total part of who you are. 
A lot of times sins seem to be a piece of what you are, but in, the, in this community, it's kind of your identification mark. And right now the difference is where it used to be something that we knew was there and somewhat hidden, it's now very much pronounced. And so the difference feel, and the way this comes down to, is when you look through Scripture, what was God's ideal? We see in Genesis chapter 1 through 2, we see the creation of man and woman, and it sets a standard for completion in human relationships for the sake of human flourishing. When God creates Adam and says that Adam was alone and he was not good, that was before Adam had ever sinned. And yet he says he's alone. What did he need? He needed a helper. And God says very clearly, and this sounds kind of awkward if you really think what he's implying, but out of all the rest of creation, there was not a suitable helper. There wasn't a match for Adam. He needed a match. He needed a match mentally, emotionally, physically, you name it. And so he created a woman where as much as you can, the emotional uh, type of way that we're wired uh, to the physical compartments and how everything lines up together, these two people came together to complete. And what did they complete? Well, not only was it something to be able to unite spirit, soul, and body together, not only was it something to be able to draw together in a one flesh union, but it also was the key to the next generation. God's design, the way that he designed both male and female, and even, yes, while this, my grandmother would roll over in her grave if she ever heard me say this, God is the author of sex. He created sexual organs. He created the whole aspect of how it works together. He created how the, the most pleasurable experiences you'll ever experience in life can actually produce the next generation. It's his idea. God designed it this way. And it's a wonderful gift because even within that, within the way that God has wired together men and women, he makes it so that we desire companionship so much in a physical nature that it ensures that a next generation is going to come. God wired all those things together. And so the reason why I say that, even in the beginning, um, God made male and female. And he made hearts, souls, minds, bodies work together that in, in so many different ways they complete each other, come together as one for human flourishing for what is next. If you go down in uh, Genesis 19, we see the first record of the effects of practice homosexuality being endorsed by a culture brought serious consequences. This is when uh, Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. There are some angels who come to visit Lot one evening, and the men in the city say, who are those men that are in your house? We want to know them. The biblical word for no typically involves sexual experience for the sake of the next generation, if you will, between uh, male and female. But in this situation, it was this. Open your door so we can uh, meet these guys. And this was how twisted the city was. Now, you guys know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah that night. Um, and just for a lot of people, sometimes people struggle with, was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah just homosexuality? Um, as blunt as I can make it, some would say it was gang rape. Uh, some would say it was different types of formats of different things that it could be. But at the very heart of this, this shows a sick and twisted society that basically says this, if it feels good, do it. And God says enough, enough. And so that night when there is the very blatant example of homosexual tendencies, because it is men outside the door saying, who are those men in the house? Bring them out to us now. In fact, let me just tell you this. For anybody who goes, well, that's just stereotyping certain things. Let me tell you how sick and twisted Lot is. If you remember the story, he goes, can I just give you my daughters instead? This is how messed up this culture is turning, right, away from God's standards. Um, you look at Ezekiel 16 in commentary, Jude 7, it says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued what? Unnatural desire. That's what they describe it. Unnatural desire. This is not natural the way that God has created us to live and operate. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And that is in Genesis 19. We know earlier in the book of Genesis that when God had said enough is enough with sin, that he brought in a flood upon the earth to destroy every living thing. There was also a symbol that God used to be able to tell them that he would not visit them by his wrath by flood again. What was that symbol? It's the rainbow which is one of the most ironic things about this whole thing, that the, LG, uh, the, the community has taken that as their symbol. And the symbol, while we look at it as beautiful, the symbol, some people say it's a symbol that God won't visit the earth with his wrath again. That's not what the symbol is. The symbol is he won't destroy the earth by flood. Next time it will be fire. 
That's, that's what the whole thing is. I'm not going to do it by flood again. So this is a sign. It's not going to happen like by flood again. But even that symbol that, they, that the community will wave like a banner is a symbol of God's judgment against sinful people who go, I don't care what you say, God. And so with this, with, with Noah and the ark and Sodom and Gomorrah, we go to places that a lot of times will be criticized because people go, oh, the only place you can find uh, scriptures that say homosexuality is a sin is Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it also talks about all these other things that we don't do. And that's a great point. It's a, hard, it's a difficult point you really need to wrestle with. But look what Leviticus 18.22 and see if this sounds clear enough from the heart of God. Men shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. There's not really any unclear aspect of that. Very to the point. Very clear what God is saying. Well, that's Leviticus, right? It's only one time, okay? Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed the detestable act. There's this picture of one being the active agent, one being the passive agent. He's saying both are wrong. Both are sinful. If it's a relationship that they're engaging in, both are in sin. So the people who say Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, we don't really follow those things. Let me tell you a group of other things that happened between Leviticus 18, 22 and Leviticus 20, 13. In this section, Scripture prohibits incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, oppression, partiality, slander, trafficking, and witchcraft. And my question is this. Do we still hold those as sins? The answer is yes. Even the community that would hold high their believed God-given right to pursue same-sex relationships if you were to ask any of them right now, is incest okay? They'd say no. What about adultery? It's wrong. Child sacrifice? Horrible. If they would just see it as abortion as well, we could include that in there, but that's another story for another day. Bestiality? Sexual relationships with an animal? No, that's wrong. Absolutely, that's horrible. Uh, theft? No, you can't steal. No, you shouldn't lie. No, you should never oppress anybody. No, you can't show partiality to people who are, you feel lesser than you. That's wrong. You can't slander somebody. You cannot traffic a child in your family for sexual advances so that you can get financial profit out of it. And no, witchcraft is evil. They would say every single one of those sins is still a sin, except for this one. So for those who say Leviticus is outdated, then do we want to throw out all those things in our society too? The answer would be no. That's the point. Whenever you and I or anybody in this community, people inside this church or outside this church, decide that we're going to pick and choose what commandments to keep and which ones we see as obsolete, now we have put ourselves on a standard higher than Scripture. We are no different than Adam and Eve, picking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, determining what you think is right and what you think is acceptable and what you think is wrong. This is what we have engaged ourselves into. If you continue to go further... Matthew chapter 5, I actually want you to turn to if you've got a copy of God's Word. Because in Matthew 5, 17-20, Jesus took the sexual morals of the Old Testament law and he actually deepened the expectations. Jesus spoke on issues that either needed to be confronted or challenged. A lot of people will say, uh, well, did Jesus really care about these situations? Because, yeah, we know Leviticus talks about it, we know the Apostle Paul talks about it, but not Jesus, right? Well, actually, as we're going to look at the scriptures, we're going to see Jesus did speak on these issues in a couple of different ways. In Matthew chapter 5, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, verse number 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? What is that? That's called the Old Testament. That's how they would call the Old Testament back in the day. The law was Genesis through Deuteronomy. What we just read in Leviticus was contained in the law. Everything that came after that, they would consider as the prophets. He goes, hey, don't think that I came to get rid of the law of the prophets. That's not what I came to do with. And we go, whoa, 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 we thought you came to get rid of Leviticus. No. Did Jesus fulfill sacrificial uh, commands in Leviticus that therefore we don't have to kill an, a, uh, a lamb anymore because he has been the lamb that sacrificed? Yes. But are there any moral commands that were seen as prohibited in the Old Testament that Jesus turns and says, hey, I know that you, we said in the Old Testament it's wrong to steal, but in the New Testament it's completely fine. No. Did he say in the Old Testament it's okay to, uh, or it's wrong to commit adultery, but in the New Testament it's all good. You never see an instance where Jesus sees a moral command in the Old Testament that he flips in the New Testament. In fact, what he says is, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, listen to this word and be haunted by it. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, anything found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, you relax one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says is, I've not come to get away with, uh, move Leviticus aside. I've actually come to fulfill it. And if anything, he goes deeper. And if you relax it, if you back off of it, if you compromise, you're actually moving away from what the kingdom of God says that you ought to do. And then he says in verse 21, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? Oh, that's a commandment. And a lot of people in the room said, I've never committed murder. He goes, but have you had anger in your heart? Whoa, Jesus. I thought the goal was not to murder. No, the goal is to rid your heart of anger. Anger leads to murder, but anger is the source of the problem. Then he goes to verse 27. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And everybody listening to Jesus' words that day go, ha, I've never committed adultery. He goes, don't even have lust after somebody in your heart. So what does Jesus do? Does he relax the commandments? If anything, he doesn't relax them. He deepens them, doesn't he? He raises the bar. So if you look at the commandments that he's mentioning in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that anymore. He says, actually, let's go further. You've heard don't commit adultery, and that's the line, but some of you have been messing around with people who are your wife, and just because you haven't crossed this line, you think you're okay. And I'm saying, let's go to the heart of your sin condition, which is your heart and your mind before you even get there. Let's address that. So with that, do you think Jesus is going to relax a commandment that's repeated two times within two chapters of everything else we would still uphold as a society? No. If anything, he's going to say, hey, you've heard it said that? Let me go even further. Don't even accept that as, as an alternative lifestyle is somehow acceptable to God. Then a lot of people say, well, still Jesus never ever spoke of uh, homosexuality. Well, and uh, I want you to turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 19. Because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus speaks to the nature of God's design and standard for gender and marriage. In Matthew chapter 19... Pharisees are trying to trap him in a question to try to see if they can somehow, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? And in verse 4, this is what Jesus says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now that answers another cultural debate that's going on right now. But Jesus says very clearly, he makes people male or female. They are designed that way. There's a purpose behind it. There's a beauty behind it. It doesn't take anything away but he makes them male and female and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his what? Wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Yes, he just did. And he spoke about it in the positive way of affirming what God has said from the beginning. He's made male, he's made female. And he did not say that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to whoever he wants to. He says a man shall be joined to his wife. Did Jesus speak to this issue? Yes, clearly. Why didn't he go deeper? Because he was a Jewish man speaking to Jewish people that in this time it was not even something to be think about. Was it, a, was it in the society? Yes. But was it accepted as a whole? No. And so what did Jesus typically address? Issues that he needed to either challenge or confront or there was some kind of discrepancy on. And in this issue, there was really no more to be said about it at that time. But what he did say carries so much weight. In Romans chapter 1, be the last place I want you to turn to tonight. Romans chapter 1. This is one of the most common uh, places in Scripture that people will go to regarding this issue. As Paul begins his letter to talk about what how... We are made righteous through our faith, but where unrighteousness comes from, from our sinful tendencies. In Romans chapter 1, verses 26, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable or degrading passions. Uh, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function. That word keeps coming up, natural function, 
of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Is that clear enough on what the New Testament teaches on this issue? The answer is yes. And he wrote this to the Romans who were living in a Roman Empire who was saying culturally it's okay and the church was saying no it's not because it goes against God's design. It goes against the way that he has made us. In fact, if you continue to go down, uh, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Their mind now becomes distorted to what is normal and right. And if you continue to go down to verse 32, they list a bunch of different sins that can lead to this type of path. But look what he says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve, desi- deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So let me just tell you that right now in our culture, verse 32 is being lived out by some people who said they've never experienced the same sex attraction, but when you give approval for such, you are looped into the category of those who are completely walking away from what Scripture's commands are. You not, may not be guilty of the act, but are you guilty of watering down what you believe to be biblical truth because of, well, I don't want to be on the out? And so it says, not only they gave approval to those who practiced them, um, you see their progression in verse 24, it gives them over to sexual sin. Verse 26, it says it gives them over to homosexual sin. Verse 28, it says it gives them over to a debased or deranged mind what takes place. Let me go quickly through a couple more of these, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, lists homosexuality. In a list of sins that shows unrighteous behavior, there are many people who have come to me and they will say, is, you know, the Greek word there is not the Greek word for homosexual, and the translators did that. And what I would typically do is I would open up a Greek New Testament and say, can you point to me which word you're talking about? Well, I don't know which one it is, but I heard that. Okay, that's great. Well, let's look at what these words really mean. There's two words that are used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. One is malakoi, which refers to effeminate men who played the passive relational role. I will not go any further in explaining what that means, but you should understand that it is an effeminate characteristic, but in a relationship with another man, that one takes the passive role. He speaks of his evil. The arsenicatois is a unique compound word that is nowhere else. Nobody goes, what in the world is it? It appears that Paul put two words together to try to explain something that he really didn't, couldn't express, but it means a male who sleeps with other males. And so he brings these two words into category. And so some people go, ah, the scripture is just saying effeminate man. It doesn't say homosexual. Well, typically, you do not find effeminate men as someone who do not at least lean towards the homosexual tendencies. And so if you go, oh, the sin's actually just being effeminate. Well, the effeminate position is this, is getting into a relationship with it sexually with another man. That's what it's implying through everything that he is saying in these words. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 I give you this last one. It says, Paul walks through sinful acts in order of the Ten Commandments. He includes homosexuality with adulterous sins. He talks about murder. He talks about adultery. And in the phrase of adultery, he goes also homosexual acts and uses some of these words yet again. So I bring all that to say, are the scriptures clear on what sin is? The answer is yes. Make sure you hear me say this. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not the only sin. Okay? So even if you don't struggle with that one, I promise you this, there's plenty in this room that put Jesus on the cross. There's enough in our own deranged, distorted, uh, deprived minds, hearts, that we are in sin. So we cannot look as if somehow, because we don't struggle with that one, we're better. But does Scripture say it's sin? Yes. If you, have to, if you say that you're going to follow the God of the Bible, you have to literally take certain verses and rip them out and say, I'm not going to follow those verses anymore. And to do that... This is where it gets complex. You can take those verses out, and guess what? I can take other verses out, right? And then there's no end to the deviations of what we can have when people say that they follow Jesus. So we know the scriptures are clear on sin, but also you need to know this. The scriptures are clear on God's heart toward sinners. If you look at this, we know that God loves all sinners despite the type or degree of sin. Uh, Praise God that God does not just love holy people who've got it all perfect together, right? Because if that's the case, i got no chance. The only chance I have is if God loves sinners, and we know this to be true. So with this, this is what changes our heart. We don't want to be a standoffish group of holy rollers who, because we don't struggle with certain sins, cast people out from the church or cast people out from there's no way that God could reach you. 
If God can reach me in my sinful condition, he can reach anybody. So I'm not writing anybody off. But I also want to make sure that if I follow Christ, I want to reflect his heart, right? I don't want, if, if he is loving towards sinners, then I can't be pig-headed towards them. But also, if Christ calls people and shows them grace, and then tells them to go and sin no more, then that's also the posture that I have to take. This is the tension, folks. This is, the, this is so hard. Jesus caught the woman in adultery, and he goes, where are your accusers? After he's wrote in the ground, they're all gone. Well, then neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Could Christ have condemned her there that day? Yes. Did he? No, he goes, I'm not going to throw the cast. I'm not going to cast the first stone, even though he could. And he sends her away. He just goes, you're forgiven, right? No, no, no. He says, go and sin no more. This is the complexity of what it means to follow Christ. I love you. I know everything about you. You're accepted. You're loved. You can be forgiven. Don't keep it up, though. Why? Because God knows what's best for us. God loves all sinners despite the type or degree of sin. We know this, that deep down, we are all prone to wander, yet each wanders in different directions. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That There is that tendency in every single one of us. This is one of the most common pushbacks that I get from people who I love very dearly. And I'm going to say something that some of you will be shocked to hear a pastor say. But when people come to me and say, Travis, I've always felt this way. I know people say it's like a decision or it's this kind of stuff. But ever since I can remember... I've never been attracted to the opposite uh, sex. I've always been attracted to the same sex. You know what I tell those people? I believe you. 100% I believe you. And you go, what do you mean? Did God make them that way? Nope, God did not make them that way. But I also know this, from the very beginning, that wasn't the sin that I struggled with. But before I learned how to walk, I was a rebellious little kid. And for some of you, maybe homosexuality tendencies weren't the sin that you were entangled in. Maybe it was your temper. Maybe it was your greed. Maybe it was your selfishness. And you go, so how can we in some categories, so, so hear me say this. I'm not saying because you feel that way, that's right. I'm just saying that I believe people when they say, I've always felt this way. I've always leaned towards that way. I believe them. I'm not going to argue with that. You know why? Because I know how I feel living in this world and my sinful tendencies that I don't ask to engage. They're just there. Why are they there? Why, why do I have three kids and all three of them struggle in different sin areas than the others? I have no clue. But I do know what Psalm 51.5 says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and am in sin and my mother conceived me. We were born in original sin. All of us come to this world with sinful conditions upon us. It doesn't mean that in any kind of way that like our mothers and fathers did something in the wrong conception. No, when we're brought in this world, we are under Adam's curse. And every single one of us come into the world with original sin. And here's the thing that I know. There are some sins I may not struggle with in my life, but there's a host of them I'm really good at. I'm really good at some stuff. Always have been. And I can fight against it, and I can push against it, and I can go, oh, I hate this, and I keep getting in the middle of it, right? And most people would say, uh, well, in this category, people who have this leaning, then we need to give them the right to follow that leaning. You would not give me that right if I told you that the temper was the sin that so easily beset me. And then I get so enraged when somebody cuts me off on winter road that I just want to ram my truck in the back of them and push them into the ditch, right? You wouldn't say that's okay. Some of you would. Most of you would not say that's okay. Why? Because, you're, because just because you feel that doesn't mean you can act on it. I'm going to be an honest enough pastor to say this. If I acted every, on every one of my feelings I've ever had in my life, I would be thrown in prison without any chance of getting out. I cannot act on everything that I feel. Because... Most of the time, what I feel is not good. It's not holy. It's not right. And so with this, for someone who says, I've always felt this way, I will say in, in the same breath, I believe you, and it doesn't mean it's right. I believe you've always felt this way. I believe you've always leaned this way. I believe it's a struggle, but that doesn't mean it's okay. In fact, Matthew 15, 19-20, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. No matter what the sin issue is, it comes out of our heart and we lean towards certain ways, but this is where it originates from, right? Is that it's, it, we're inside, we're, we're born into sin and we struggle these different ways. Know that all sinners are rebellious but not unredeemable. I believe this, no one is too far gone, praise God. 
I believe there's nobody whose sin is so great, whose uh, rap sheet is so bad, that somehow they are unreachable. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful force in this world and it can change any heart. If it can change the Apostle Paul from someone who went around murdering pastors and missionaries, I think he can change anybody. And so with this, we know this, that anybody can be redeemed. So as we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, if we go back to those verses, homosexuality is listed as a sin with a host of other sins, right? It's listed. There's a list of sins that are unthinkable and rebellious and defiant against God. But here's what you need to know in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Some of you used to be this way, but now you've been changed. Some of you used to be murderers, but now you're life givers. Some of you used to be adulterous, but now you're faithful. Some of you used to be thieves, but now you're hardworking. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I am one for and thankful that Jesus Christ does not look at me and my past and so define me by that. So, even if there was that sinful tendency in my life, even if that is the sin that so easily besets me, even if that's the sin that I hate and struggle with, that doesn't mean I can't be redeemed. But I also look at my young boys at age 14 and say, boys, there are going to be some things you struggle with for the rest of your life. You can get some personal victory over and you can fight and you can push. There's going to be some things that are always a struggle. So could there be the potential that someone has homosexual temptation leanings in their life and for the rest of their life they can pray and read and memorize scripture and it still be a temptation? Well, I guess I could ask you, is there still a temptation that so easily entangles you? No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you read, no matter how many courses you went to, no matter how many times, but it's still there, right? And you can find success for two years, but then all of a sudden something can, oh, I feel, the, feel that leaning again. The same way it, it can be that for us. Thank God that God's love always precedes any positive change in our lives. If we think through what Scripture teaches us, that His heart is clear towards sinners, and that includes every single person, every single one of us. And if His love precedes any positive change, that means this. God doesn't love you because you were lovable. In fact, He loved you because you were unlovable. And that love is what changes you. I think the best summary Bible verse in all of Scripture is Romans 5.8. That God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the summary of the Bible right there in one verse. Okay, God demonstrates his love for us and that while you were still a sinner, that's when he died. He did not save you once you cleaned up your act. You know why? Because then you didn't need saving. Every single one of us needs saving, whether your sins are homosexual or heterosexual. If they are something that you keep quiet where nobody sees or if it's out there for the entire world to see, every single one of us are in sin. And God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We also need to know, though, thankfully, that the scriptures are clear on our dilemma. Point number three is this, is that God knows that we're going to be in certain kind of situations like this that puts us in a very tough spot. And we have to figure out this thing right here, that Christians must find a way to love people without approving of sinful behavior. This is the tension of our day. This will be the battle that many of us will fight, and some of us will fall down in the process. To be able to love people and yet not approve of their sinful behavior. When I was growing up, the um, phrase we used to use was, hate the sin, but love the sinner, right? In the homosexual community, that phrase, if you use that, sometimes can really get under their skin and they don't like it. You know why? Because they go, this isn't a part of, this isn't something I do, this is who I am. So when you say you hate the sin, you're saying you hate me because it's so intrinsically linked into their identity now. It's forced them to be. That they can't see it as clearly as you and I could say, is, I love you, I just don't like what you're doing. They go, and then you don't like me because this is who I am. We, understand in our culture... We have equated your identity with your sexual orientation. And I want to let you guys know this right now. If your identity is wrapped up in your sexual orientation, then what do you do with single Jesus? What do you do with single Apostle Paul? What do you do with people who never got married or never have children or whatnot or don't lean towards they Are they lesser of a person? No. Sexuality is a part of our culture and part of our lives, but it does not define us. You don't have to be married and sexually active or in a relationship with anybody to be valued in the heart of God or around the world at all. This is not the defining aspect of who you are. So with this, what do we do? The first thing is to speak the truth in love, 
Real easy, right? It's easy to speak the truth. It's easy to speak in love, but to do both, this is what's challenging. Protesters, let me explain this. Protesters proclaim the truth without love. People who love to go around picket signs, yell at people who uh, live differently than them. Protesters proclaim the truth without love. Enablers, they offer love without the what? The truth. This, this is the tension here. It's very easy to do one or the other. You can be a protester. You proclaim the truth without love. Here's what God's word says, and I'm standing on it, and I can't believe you're in sin. No love. No love. But then a enabler is, oh, I just love you the way that you are. Oh, I don't want to disrupt our relationship. Don't want to make you feel bad. And so I'm not going to give you the truth. But what does Christ call us to? Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Our job is to be able to speak what God's word says in such a way that it comes across as even loving. The, um, my, my prayer emphasis leading up to tonight has not been, God, what should I say, but how, with the manner in which I should say it. And, and y'all know, y'all hear me preach enough that if I want to come at you, I'll come at you. Okay? I'm not, I'm not coming at you tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as, as tenderly and sensitively as I possibly can. But I want you to know this. I think that homosexual sins our sin under the standard of God as well as so many other sins that we struggle with. And yet, I still can be so loving to people that if they get frustrated with me, they're going to have to honestly, if they could get honest for a second, they're going to say, but I'm, I'm frustrated with the God you represent. That's, that's what I, I don't want them to say, it was your delivery. It was your manner. It was that angst that you showed. No, no, no. I, I know this, that in any type of situation, Folks, all of us are just one simple mistake. I'm throwing so much of our life away. So if I find somebody in sin, it's not because I'm somehow better than them, even if I don't struggle in that area. So how do we find speaking the truth in love? Second thing we must do is to separate desire from identity. So kind of referenced this a little while ago. How do you separate desire from identity? Here's what you need to know. What you feel does not determine who you are. What you feel does not determine who you are. So if you feel a certain tendency, that doesn't define you. That's not your identity. There's no way that's your identity. There's no other way that we would say, oh, because you feel this, therefore you are a that all the time. No. And, and why this gets so messed up is that right now, um, it's one thing that when you're, you know, 18 years old, launching out into the world, you, you know, sort of like what would people say, pick a team. Are you going to be looking for... Uh, heterosexual love or homosexual love or whatever, what does this look like? But we're not talking about 18-year-olds anymore, are we? We're talking that one of the most common things that I'm hearing parents say is that even in elementary and middle school, my kids are being asked, what are you? What do you mean? Uh, what, do you, what do you mean, what am I? What's your sexual orientation? Folks, I didn't have a sexual orientation when I was in fourth grade. My, my mind wasn't there. Um, now, what's happening, though, is these kids are being asked a certain questions, and media is pushing it in their faces so much that kids are developing sexual appetites before it's time. And whether it's homosexual or heterosexual things, what's taking place is the exposure to media and um, just sinful material is causing such a um, crazy dynamic in our culture right now. Um, did you know that one of the most commonly prescribed prescriptions for teenagers right now for young boys is actually Viagra? Be and you think, that would not be my experience because they've been so overexposed continually to pornography and material and they are um, doing all types of things to satisfy themselves, they are now finding themselves unable to be able to find satisfaction when they are in a relationship because of the overexposure. And so now medic medicine is giving to young boys and young women to make sure that their hormones and everything is in the right place because it's just been too much too early. Now, you understand why our kids are a little bit confused, right? Um, the reality is this, you must protect your children from premature sexual situations as much as possible. 
and you say, what does that mean? I lock them in their room until they're 23? Maybe. <laughs> Quite possibly. Um, folks, it's not always even what they go looking for, is it? It's what comes looking for them. Um, I'm a dad of two 14-year-olds and one 10-year-old, and they don't have a phone yet. And you may put, put me in a train of just insanity, but I've explained to them, did you know that, well, one time someone sent me a message, but they thought it was somebody else in their contacts? Did you know one time I was sitting there at my home and a, a lady in the church that I serve sent me a message of herself and a picture of herself that I thought, why is she sending that to me? I didn't ask for that. And she said, oh, there's a bug on my phone. I need to get that figured out. And then I just came to find out that actually she meant to send it to somebody else in the church, but she just sent it to me accidentally. Now I say that because it's quite the awkward conversation to have with her husband and my wife. And by the grace of God, that marriage is still surviving. And by the grace of God, I think that her thumb accidentally hit the wrong thing so that this thing could stop before it went any further. But I tell that to my boys to say, I never asked for that picture, but it came to me one day. Why? Because somebody else had a phone. And, and the reality is this. If your child has a... Television sounds so obsolete, right? Okay. Television in their room, a phone in their room, a laptop in their room, an iPad in their room, a Kindle in their room. You have to understand they are open to see whatever it is in the world they want to see. And you have to determine if that's acceptable in your house or not. And I know for privacy and I know for all kinds of things, but here, here's the thing that I know. I'm responsible for those kids for a certain day and then one day they have to make decisions on their own. But I lock the doors at night so somebody doesn't come in and rob us. So I'll also lock other things so that somebody doesn't come in and rob certain parts of their innocence too. And that's what I have to do as a father. And so um, I know this, that even in our situation, that it could be in church, it could be in Christian schools, it could be at youth camp, that they can see certain things. The things that I grew up with as a young person, the first exposure that I ever had to pornography was older guys in the youth group that my mama said were good for me to hang out with. You have to be careful today, folks. So are you having the conversations with your kids? Stuff's going to be out there, right? You can't go in the supermarket without just rotting your face. But are you taking any kind of precautions? Because what's happening right now is these children at such a young age are being pressured to pick a team, choose a side, identify as one thing or the next. Right down the road from here, there was a school, parents that are in our church, who said that their daughter came back from summer break, I think 13 years old, and had to fill out circle and uh, thing on this. Write your name, what do you want to be called by, and what pronoun would you like to be referred as? Right down the road. 13. The daughter circled unsure. The teacher called and said, your daughter's gender confused. She doesn't know if she's a girl or she's a boy. You might want to talk to her. So parents sit down. Is everything okay? And she said, I, I circled unsure. Yeah, what does that mean? She goes, I forgot what a pronoun was. <laughs> Folks, um, Somebody who's trying to remember what a pronoun is over summer break does not need to answer the question what pronoun they need to be talked to by a teacher. What This is where it's getting out of control. This is a debased, deranged mindset that takes place, and now we are in a ludicrous spot uh, to where we ought to be. Got to be careful here and separate desire from identity. Let me finish these things up here. Also clarify the goal as the church, what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live our lives. This is what I mean by that. We ought not to address culture wars and sin issues the same way. For those people right now that this is a cultural issue for you and you want to win the cultural war, I get it. Vote a certain way. Support certain things. Be all about that. But when you're one-on-one -on -one with a person who's struggling in this issue, that's not the time to win a culture war. That's a time to be kind to somebody. That's a time to show the love of Christ. And I would even say, if you're going to be picketing and protesting and voting in a certain way and posting on social media, there's a way to stand for truth and to do it in love. You don't have to run people over. The, the message of the cross is offensive enough, is what 1 Corinthians says. We don't have to be offensive in our delivery of it. So don't address a sin issue the same way we do a culture war. You understand this. You can win an argument and lose the person if you are not careful. 
You can debate and you can win it, right? You can show everybody how smart you are and you can put that person to shame through all your debate skills and now you've got Leviticus memorized and you can go all that you want to, but in the manner in which you say it, do you lose the person, then I will say this, you lost. The goal is not to win the argument. The goal is not to win the culture war. The goal is the hearts of men and women throughout mankind. That's what we're after. It's for people to be in the sincerest, most dedicated place and near as they can to King Jesus. That's the goal. Not to win something. The goal is, is people. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says it this way, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become very dear to us. Folks, if you speak what you believe and they don't get the idea that you actually love them in the process, you lost. You lost. You can speak the truth in such a way that this person goes, I disagree with you, I'm frustrated with you, I don't like the sight of you because you represent all this whatever that I'm trying to push against. But sure, you've been kind with me. That, that's the goal, and it can happen. I also want to encourage you to create a safe place. Uh, create a safe place for the people in your life that believe and live and act and think differently than you. Let me tell you why I believe this community is so cherished today. The LGBTQ plus community is so cherished because it accepts people just as they are. Now, I'll put in parentheses as long as it's not biblical Christianity. Okay, But anything else... We could say strict religion and other stuff. Islam, Judaism would be the same, but Christianity is kind of an easy one to, to, to go down. And honestly, one of the reasons why it's so easy to pick a fight with is because we've picked a fight for so long. We, we've been antagonistic and ugly in the way we describe it, so why wouldn't we be a place where they push back on? Let me tell you what's, what, where, where the church is losing right now. Ready for this? And this is it's not an easy answer. I don't have a solution for it. But if you go to the LGBTQ plus community and you say, that's the letter that I identify with, they say, you're welcome. At the same time that many of those are having the doors of their homes and the doors of their churches shut on them. And so for people who are losing the approval and love of mom and dad and not having a place to stay and feeling like they talked to their youth pastor and the youth pastor gave them truth and they don't feel welcome anymore, then what do they do? They run deeper into that community because of all these other relationships have been cut off. That's what makes this so conflicting because if you look, it is a, you are welcome here no matter what you come in like, no matter what you like, no matter what you have, you're, you're welcome here. That plus sign says a lot to a group of people who are struggling with how to determine their lives. Our church and your home should be a safe place to be honest about struggles. Deep down, I really do believe this. It should be a safe place. Uh, here's here's the, the, the thing, folks. You go, would it be okay if somebody walks in this church and says, I struggle with this? I sure hope we'd make them feel welcome. I sure hope we'd say, yes, you're welcome here. Yes, you're loved here. Yes, we'll sit down and talk with you. Yes, you. Then there's got to be complexities of how we unpack what does that look like. But in the same way, goodness gracious, I don't think we're carding everybody due to the sins at the door, are we? Because I don't think I'm getting in today. Right? We all got stuff. Now, you go, yeah, but what about this? Now, your church should be this way. Your home, the re- why do I say that at home? Parents, grandparents, you need to have a safe environment for a kid to feel like, I can tell you, I'm struggling here, and you not go bananas and send them packing. I've told my kids, if you have murdered someone, it's a safe place to tell. This is the safest place to confess anything right here with me. I will walk you through anything, but you can't lie to me. You've got to be honest with me. What is it you're struggling with? It's safe here. So I have learned the practice in counseling. I don't have a shock face anymore, okay? Sometimes I hear some stuff, y'all. And I'll just hear some stuff, and they're, they're waiting for some kind of cringe. I'm just as solid as I can be. I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah. But you never heard that before, man. That's so JV. I heard that 13 times yesterday. I mean, it's like, it doesn't even phase me anymore, right? I want to have that face with my kids. I want to have that face with anybody in my family. You can drop anything on me, and I go, okay? All right? I can see it. I want them to feel safe to share with me. If they messed out in this way, if they messed up in this way, no matter what it is, I want them to feel safe to be able to come and share. Those who admit weakness and those who display defiance are two different groups of people, though. And what I mean by that, really quickly, there is a difference between someone who comes to this church and says, I struggle with homosexual tendencies. I have messed up in the past. I am tempted that way, but I believe that the Bible says it's wrong, and I'm fighting against that, and I'm a follower of Jesus. Can I join the church? The answer is yes. Yes. 
But there's a difference in saying, I know what God's word says and I don't care. That's difference. One is weakness, the other is defiance. Do you see the difference? It's mindset, right? So if somebody comes into this church and says, I struggle with addiction to this, and I'm, I know it's wrong, and I'm fighting, and I just messed up yesterday, but I love Jesus, and can I join the church? The answer is, yeah. Defiance is, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm the master of my own world, and I can do whatever I want to. God doesn't have any jurisdiction on my life. There's a difference there, right? There's, there's the biggest difference as we go through it. In your relationships, work to be the reliable person that people can come to when troubled. So it's your family, your friends, that no matter how much they struggle, that if life falls apart, you should be the most open, inviting door so that if life falls apart, even if they know that you disagree with them, they feel safe to come to you. That's the goal. There are people that are close to me in my life that know where I stand on their sin issues. And yet, I want to be the most intentional, loving, open person in their life so that if something falls apart, I'm the first phone call they make. That's what I want. As I don't want them going anywhere else because I don't know what else anybody else is going to tell them, but I can hopefully point them to the truth. And this last point here is determine the higher story. What I mean by that is, um, in the last five years, I'm just picking a number, okay? People who once believed what the Bible says on these issues, I have seen change. And let me tell you why they've changed. Because the story of someone they know. They know what the Bible teaches. But a story based on someone they care about going, I've always felt this way, Dad. you, you got to understand, Mom, I, I, I'm just leaning this towards weight. And, and, we, and we feel like, oh, this person right here got kicked out of their home. And they got abused at school. And this is wrong. And you're, you're right. It's wrong. And so due to a compassion, which is a good thing, we walk away from what we know to be true. And so... We will be tempted to compromise on God's truth due to cultural pressure or heartfelt stories. Where some of us in this room know what God's word says, but we will not be walking in step with it in five years from now is this. You will either feel like you were such a minority on the cultural debate on this issue, you will cave into pressure, or due to a compassionate heart of someone who says, I've always felt this way, you will walk away with what you know to be true based on what you believe to be true for that person. And it will cause you to change. It's caused many people to change. In fact, this issue and this issue, issue alone is the reason why I believe above all else that I finally understood the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can I tell you that there are some people who once said they were disciples of Jesus Christ who are no longer walking, walking with him? You know Why? Because they love their child more than they love Jesus. They love their brother more than they love Jesus. And due to that love of that child and not wanting to lose them, they change what they believe to keep that child in an active relationship. They have chosen the child over Jesus. They've chosen the brother over Jesus. They've chosen whatever it is over Jesus. And this is the issue. As we've kind of unpacked this, and, and before I, I conclude tonight... Um, I want to give you a, a few further resources just so you know. There's a lot of stuff out there, but some content if you wanted to go a little bit further into this. Um, one is a book by Preston Sprinkle called A People to be Loved. And because this issue is such a common issue, and we've heard from many of you, they're just trying to figure out how to love people in your life that are believing and living differently than you. On August 17th, starting next Wednesday night, we're going to walk through this course. Jeremy Johns is going to be leading this course on Wednesday nights. Um, just so you know, if you go to this course, you are not saying that you struggle with this sin. If you're going to this course, it does not mean that your child is struggling with this sin. If you're going to this course, you're saying this, I want to be a responsible Christian in these days. I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know how to defend it. And I want to know how to love people that are living differently than me. You do need to sign up online because we're going to have books for you. And we want to help you out and make sure you know that. But that's a wonderful resource and that course just to help serve you in the process. Also, a book by Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And by Sam Alberry, Is God Anti-Gay? And then I'll also uh, commend to you a book by Rosaria Butterfield, which is Openness Unhindered and the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. That's a long title. But uh, Professor Butterfield was a liberal professor, I believe, at Syracuse who wrote editorials about why the church is messed up and why the homosexual community needs to be elevated. And a pastor in town wrote her and said, I just I thought your article was really thought out. I wonder if I can ever help. And she thought, oh, 
this is free research assistance. And so she went over to his house, and that night the pastor and his wife just began to say, hey, we made a meal. You want to sit down with us? What? They never talked about homosexuality that night. They just talked about what it meant to follow Jesus, and they did that for months and months and months. And then one day she said, y'all have something very different than what I've got, and I need it. And Professor Butterfield converted to Christianity. She ended her lesbian relationships. She's now married to a pastor, and she goes and speaks on all different types of areas to say, Jesus can make a change in your life. And it, cha and it started for her because somebody knew conviction but loved her despite of what she was in. And that, that book is a wonderful gift to you. Tonight, as I conclude, I hope this has been helpful. I hope the spirit of it has been helpful. I know it may spark some conversations, and that's all good. That's why we want to have this course afterwards to do. But um, years ago, I was called by someone who asked if their child would be welcome in our church. And I said, what do you mean? They didn't go to our church. They said, well, uh, at my church this Sunday, my pastor began to talk about all the homosexual community and started banging the pulpit and said, I'll tell you this, and no homosexual person would ever be welcome to join this church. And I never heard so many rowdy amens in that church as I did that day. And my question is this, would my child be welcome at your church? Because I've been begging her to come to church for, for months now. And I thought, what would have happened if she showed up that Sunday? To hear this church going, oh, never, they'll never be welcome here. I said, so what's your question? She goes, could my daughter join your church? Or would you close the door in her face? I thought, well, this is going to be recorded and put out in the paper. So let's just go ahead and <laughs> go for it, right? I said, well... Ma'am, you don't go to our church. Your daughter doesn't go to our church, but you're just wondering how to handle the situation. Yep. I said, well, we got a similar situation going on at the church right now. She goes, really? I said, yeah. So we got a guy that started coming to church, and all of a sudden he starts bringing his partner with him. It's obvious they're together. We find out they're living together. They're obvious. It, it, they're, they're not hiding it at all. They're sitting on the back row, and everybody knows that they're together. They're an item. And um, now they want to join the church. And she goes, Ann, what did you say? I told him no. She goes, there. See, you're telling me that my daughter would not be welcome at your church. I said, you didn't ask about the partner, though. You said it's a man and his partner. I said, and you didn't ask about who the partner was. Who's the partner? I said, it's a woman he's shacking up with. They're not married. She goes, did you set me up? I said, yes, ma'am, I did. 100%. She goes, what are you trying to say? I said, this man is saying that he doesn't have to follow the biblical ethics about what does it mean. And he is enjoying the conveniences of heterosexual sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And therefore, he has a defiant, rebellious attitude towards the word of God. And therefore, that shows me he's not ready to join a church because he's not bending his heart to what scripture teaches. So no, that defiant, rebellious man who goes, I don't know what God's, I know what God's word says and I don't care, is not ready to join a church because his heart's not committed to Jesus. So no, he can't join the church. And if your daughter came to our church and said, I don't care what God's word says, I'm going to do it anyway, just like that heterosexual man said the same thing, no, she can't join. But if she came and said, I know it's sin, I know it's wrong, I've struggled all my life, but I'm fighting. I love Jesus and I want to do the right thing. That's different. And folks, we've, we've got to learn the capacity to be able to engage with both of those parties, right? And we've got to be able to speak the truth. We've got to do it in love. So what I'm praying and asking for you is that in your individual relationships and whoever may show up to church on Sunday, that we make it really, really hard to hate Jesus by the way that we live our lives. That would be my goal for us. Let me pray. Father, tonight as we have unpacked uh, some very deep and difficult. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.